Max Politics. This is Ben Max. Thanks for tuning in for this episode of the show. We're speaking here on Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. My guest today is the New York City Health Commissioner, Dr. Ashwin Vasan. And we have a lot to talk about with the commissioner, including and especially the recent announcement first made by Mayor Eric Adams in his 2024 State of the City speech that Dr. Vasan has issued a commissioner's advisory about the public health threat of social media, especially on youth. Dr. Vassen has called the dangers of social media on youth. Platforms like Facebook and Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, X, formerly known as Twitter, and YouTube, a public health crisis serving digital toxins that are public health threats like other toxins, such as tobacco, and that the city is promising now a public health playbook related to social media platforms with the advisory that he's issued as a key initial piece of that process, sounding the alarm about social media platforms and user well-being, especially among youth, often the most vulnerable to issues like cyberbullying and where these platforms can often provide unfettered access to dangerous material and information related to illicit activities, information about self-harm and suicide and other dangers, not to mention, more simply, their addictive nature and the use by companies of algorithms and ways that they uh, curate feeds meant to keep users engaged and addicted, as well as the use of users' data for a variety of purposes. So the commissioner's advisory, which everyone should read, by the way, it's only about two and a half pages long. It also includes guidance. It's not just about warnings about the negatives of social media. It also has some really important tips for adults and youth about carefully managing and discussing social media use, as well as a number of links to helpful resources. For example, the advisory says, quote, parents and caregivers are encouraged to delay giving children access to a smartphone or similar device that can access social media until at least age 14, and then reassess based on the current evidence of harms and the child's strengths and needs. When children begin to travel more independently in New York City, caregivers are encouraged to start them with a phone that does not have the ability to access social media, end quote. So there's a lot to dig into today with Dr. Vassin on how the city is tackling the dangers of social media on youth, and the broader atmosphere around this issue, which is being examined at all levels of government. As you'll hear from him today, this is not something the city can tackle on its own, of course. We're also going to try to get into a few other topics today with Dr. Vassen, like how the city is now starting to a study of long COVID, the lasting and often debilitating impacts faced by many from their COVID infections, as well as the city's broader efforts to increase public health and life expectancy, including by tackling the opioid crisis, drug misuse and overdose in additional or enhanced ways. There's a lot to get to here. We'll try to get to as much of it as we can. Dr. Ashwin Vasan, the New York City Health Commissioner, joins me shortly. First, a reminder, we're coming to you from New York Law School, where I'm the executive editor and program director for the Center for New York City Law. We have some great programming coming up in February and March and beyond, but keep an eye out for those listings. Check us out at the Center for New York City Law 
at New York Law School. We're working on publishing more reporting and commentary about New York policy, government, and law, and have a lot of great events uh, in the works here at New York Law School. Here on Max Politics, the conversations about New York politics and policy continue here from the Center for New York City Law. And if you've missed any recent episodes of the show, do check them out in the podcast feed after you listen to this one. I've had some great recent conversations with, for example, Assembly Member Alex Boris about court reform, artificial intelligence regulation, and much more, with State Senator Zellner Myrie about housing policy and a whole lot more as the 2024 session gets going in Albany. And I recently spoke with analysts Dr. Christina Greer and Harry Siegel about Mayor Adams' State of the City address. Those are among a whole bunch of great conversations and guests, all at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts, probably where you're listening to this one. All right, as we move toward bringing on today's guest, Dr. Ashwin Vasan, the city's health commissioner, to discuss social media as a public health crisis and some other topics, a couple of other very quick notes of context for this discussion. As we're speaking here on Wednesday, January 31st, 2024, there's a hearing today in Washington, D.C. with big tech CEOs discussing their social media platforms and the impacts on users, especially kids, and what to do about the harms, including the proposed federal Kids Online Safety Act, sometimes called COSA. It's a federal bill that would require covered platforms to take measures in their designs and operations and their products and services to prevent and mitigate certain harms that can arise from that use, such as online bullying, sexual exploitation, and more and a whole bunch of other potential regulations within this act that has a lot of bipartisan support, at least seemingly in the U.S. Senate, and we'll see if it advances in Congress. Uh, Lots of wild card in the House of Representatives, of course, these days. Uh, Unclear what might be able to gain traction there, but the issue of the challenges and threats related to social media platforms and youth is something that has a lot of bipartisan attention So there is some hope about some federal regulations, but of course, states and cities are often left to try to act on their own in the absence of federal action. There are a lot of people looking to the federal government as well as potentially state governments to regulate social media platforms, including about more release of information, getting uh, permission structures allowed, making sure that there's more information available for parents, guardians, and minors about how to report uh, issues and misuse of the platforms and a whole bunch of other uh, potential regulations. All right. Dr. Vassan's health commissioner's advisory references, by the way, speaking of the federal level, that in May 2023, there was a U.S. Surgeon General's advisory on social media and youth mental health, which found that, quote, the current body of evidence indicates that while social media may have benefits for some children and adolescents, there are ample indicators that social media can also have a profound risk of harm to the mental health and well-being of children and adolescents, At this time, we do not yet have enough evidence to determine if social media is sufficiently safe for children and adolescents, end quote. Uh, That's only part of it. Also, it notes that there's a lot that can be done by settings and notifications and so forth, but some of that needs to be allowed by the platforms or required of the platforms. 
There's a lot more to the commissioner's recent advisory that we'll try to get into with him momentarily as we discuss social media and public health, especially among young people and some of the public policy solutions New York City is advancing. By way of another note of context, though, there's also measures being pursued at the state level in New York by Governor Kathy Hochul, Attorney General Letitia James, and state legislators, including at least a pair of bills that could pass state government in the coming weeks or months that have some strong legislative support, as well as the support of the governor and the attorney general. The attorney general, by the way, is urging the Supreme Court to make it clear via some pending rulings that states have the right to regulate social media platforms. And she's also separately, uh, but relatedly, one of a bipartisan coalition of 32 attorneys general who in October of 2023 filed a federal lawsuit against the Facebook parent company Meta for harming young people's mental health and contributing to the youth mental health crisis. So there's a lot going on at all three levels of government here. And I'll ask Dr. Vasin about what federal and state measures the city is supporting as part of our conversation today. Also today, hoping to get to a few other public health issues with the commissioner, including how the city is starting to study long COVID and other broader efforts to improve public health and life expectancy. On that front, very briefly, there was also a local hearing here today on uh, January 31st at the New York City Council on a bill that would require the city's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, DOHMH, to develop a five-year population health agenda for the purpose of improving public health outcomes and addressing health disparities. This is a bill that the Adams administration and Dr. Vassen have been working on with the city council in concert and is sort of a tie-in with the administration's healthy NYC agenda that is about increasing public health and life expectancy in New York City. All right, so let's get to my conversation with New York City Health Commissioner, Dr. Ashwin Vassen, who was appointed to this role beginning of the Adams administration in January, 2022. Previously, he was the president and CEO of Fountain House, a national nonprofit direct services provider focused mostly on people living with serious mental illnesses. Dr. Vasan, thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me, Ben. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time. So uh, we're going to get into, as I mentioned in the introduction, we're going to get into a lot about how the city is taking on issues related to the problems and, and threats and challenges of social media. But first, as I often do with guests, let me start broadly. You've been health commissioner for a little over two years now. Anything for listeners, this doesn't have to be exhaustive, obviously, but anything you've learned about the New York City Health Department, obviously you were there prior to coming back as commissioner, um, but about how government fosters public health in New York City, any big reflections um, you know, that you might want to share one or two things on your two plus years about sort of how the city does this work that you're leading? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, this has to be the best public health job in the United States because New York City cares about public health in a way that just about no other locality and frankly, many states don't don't care about. We spend more per capita than just about anywhere in the country. We have, um, you know, we have 7000 staff we deployed across the five boroughs. So it's an incredible place. The work that we've done to um, influence global tobacco control, tuberculosis programs, HIV, our COVID response. It's just an amazing place to work. I'm incredibly honored to have this role. Um, 
and it, it, you know, irrespective of any administration, this is a great job. So um, I want to start there. Uh, Number two oh, is please, that yes, I, go ahead. I think that public health has been through a an extraordinary time, an extraordinary stress test, I like to say. And like any stress test, the goal of a stress test is to see if there are issues. But ultimately, you don't want to fail the whole test. And the good news is, particularly in New York, we haven't failed our stress test in public health, right? We responded to COVID. We delivered our, we delivered historic vaccination campaign. We've navigated people through um, COVID, RSV, MPOX, but it's also revealed some strain, some weaknesses, some areas of improvement. Um, it's also revealed the fact that this country and this city is not really an exception, doesn't spend enough on prevention and public health. We have a sick care system that takes up almost all of our attention and energy, $4 trillion in the U.S. economy, a totally unsustainable trajectory for our country. And we spend only about three cents on every dollar on prevention and public health. So we have a national and local conversation about what are our priorities. So um, that's the macro environment. Um, I also walked into a job, walked into the job at during Omicron. And of course, um, in the aftermath of um, the worst of COVID and what that has certainly unleashed is a lot of postmortems and a lot of retrospective looks at what we got right and what we got wrong. But what's underneath it, I think, is a collective pain and a collective mental health crisis that I think explains partly why I'm in this role. I'm, I'm obviously an epidemiologist and I worked in HIV and infectious diseases and internal medicine, but mental health has been my focus for the last several years. And um, I think that the administration, the mayor saw that we needed to center this in our in our public health agenda as the next uh, major issue. We, I've colloquially referred to it as the second pandemic. Um, but what, why I say that is because there's a real disconnect between how things may or may not be improving and how people feel about it. And so even empirically, as things are getting better, um, people feel bad about it. And I think we've been through this massive trauma, this massive uh, event that we're not really unpacking. We just kind of shifting gears. Like, I don't want to talk about it anymore. But with any trauma, there's the post-trauma state that you have to unpack in order to heal. And I think a lot of our reaction to the political and policy discourse, the social discourse is really our hypervigilance. It's really this post-trauma state where we're like, God, everything stinks. <laughs> and uh, I can't, and that prevents you from actually seeing good that's right in front of you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we just relieved $2 billion in medical debt last week, the health department. Um, and, you know, we got positive feedback, but that's a huge deal for New Yorkers. Like 500,000 New Yorkers are going to mm -hmm. have the number one cause of bankruptcy in their lives, most likely removed at no cost and at, with no um, pain and suffering for themselves. So that, you know, there's good things happening. And I choose to be an optimist and try to see through some of that malaise that's affecting all of us. And I'm no, I'm not, you know, while I'm an optimist, I'm not immune to it. I'm human. So, yeah. Yeah. You hit on some really interesting thing there. I mean, I think on the medical debt front, I think as people start to get notices about their debt being forgiven or whatever those steps might be, there's probably going to be a lot of good stories to tell and a lot of people feeling that relief. Um, 
you know, you hit at something that, you know, is, is really just so present in, uh, you know, what I cover so much policy and politics, but in the political discourse right now about how if you look across public opinion polling, everybody is just down on everybody and everything almost to uh, an uh, almost unthinkable degree. I mean, uh, we're not going to get into politics here, you know, but even uh, this is some of how the mayor's responded about some of his poll numbers. He's like, people are pissed. People are upset, you know, and there's a lot of challenges out there from everything from inflation and, you know, the cost of living. Um, but but I think you get at something really important here, too, of course, which is the lingering effects of going through this once a century, you know, maybe pandemic um, and how as a society, you know, we're not we haven't really wrestled with a lot of that. And I want to come back to that maybe when we talk about um, the study you're undertaking on long COVID as well. Um, but I wanted to ask you on that front um, before we talk about social media, uh, again, coming back to sort of the department that you lead and these thousands of people working on public health in New York City and coming out of COVID, um, you, you've been dealing as across government dealt with sort of a depletion of the workforce, but also people who had in many cases helped take the city through this this awful pandemic, even people who stayed feeling burnt out, feeling depressed, feeling all sorts of challenges. How is it today at the health department? Do you have the personnel you need and have and and the personnel that you have there? Are 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 they doing OK? Is you know, how should New Yorkers sort of think about what's going on in this massive agency that you run? Yeah, it's a thank you for asking this, because, you know, my team, our people went through so much uh, over the course of two, three years. Um, and yeah, burnout was real. Turnover was real. Vacancies were real. Those are all real things that city agencies were facing, but particularly those that were kind of at the coal face of the response. Um, things are definitely better today. And I think part of why it's better is what I've tried to put forth is that with any time that's tumultuous, with any sort of major strain, there's also a massive opportunity to to grow, to change, to lift up some of the lessons learned and to refocus. Right behind me, you see this logo, Healthy NYC. We launched that at the end of last year um, to, to basically get our collective focus as sharp and as coordinated as um, at least we were here in the health department around the COVID response. How do you do that in a non-crisis, non-emergency time? Well, when we unpacked the life expectancy data, we saw a pretty dramatic drop. And it wasn't just due to COVID, rising overdoses, cancers, chronic diseases, suicides, mental health issues, driving violence and other things. We're seeing across the board preventable deaths going up and life expectancy falling to historic low levels in the last decades. And even prior to COVID, we saw a relative flatlining compared to the 12 years prior when we gained three years of life expectancy due to a really public health focused administration um, in Mayor Bloomberg. So why did we choose to focus on life expectancy as a unifying goal? Because underneath it, everyone can see themselves in this work whether you're dealing with diabetes and heart disease or birth inequities or even the indirect things like climate change and access to care and, and uh, social needs, it all impacts life and death. That's all measurable. You can put 
quantifiable goals around that. We've set a timeline for 2030, and we ladders up to an overall life expectancy goal of 83 years, which is the longest life expectancy on record that we would have ever that we would ever achieve if we are successful. Second piece is the fact that we can launch initiative after initiative, but that could die with me, it could die with the mayor. We wanted to make sure that this was centralized in city planning. And so Council Member Shulman, our partner who runs the health committee, introduced a local law to codify Healthy NYC into city government to make sure that every five years we're coming back to the table, reassessing our progress, looking at the data, um, reassessing our goals. Maybe we need to set new targets, but we can't get off the hook. So we're, however long I'm here, my successor has to is on the hook for this. And the next mayor is on the hook for this. And that's a part of what we wanted to leave behind was a collective focus for this agency as the city's health strategist, bringing people together from all across city government and beyond city government around this common vision of healthier, longer lives for all New Yorkers. Um, and I, want to, I wanted to get into a little bit more of that with you as well. Um, just lastly, on the department, even as the mayor has exempted you from some of the savings programs, some uh, the hiring freeze, there are still challenges at the health department with with staffing and with some of the key sort of tasks that you do. Uh, is there a plan to try to address some of those deficits? How how are you approaching sort of personnel and you know a lot of the sort of basic functions of the department that are uh, showing a little bit of depletion um, around some of that uh, those those metrics. Yeah, no, no doubt. Recruitment is tough. It's it's tough around the country in public health and government public health, um, salary competitiveness, pay equity. We've really focused on um, bolstering worksite wellness opportunities to make sure that people feel supported. We tripled the budget of that um, unit within the the um, in my first. Uh, weeks as commissioner, because we wanted to provide more resources to to our staff to take care of themselves, to go get access to mental health care, to and some of its digital technology, some of its in person resources. Um, we created a whole task force on disability, so that our so that our um, uh, staff who live with disabilities could be taken care of and seen in ways that maybe we hadn't in the past. So. You know, we're really trying our best to invest in our workforce and to ensure that it's a great place to work um, and that people want to be here. The good news is that we just did a, you know, a workforce wellness survey um, in over the last summer and into the fall. And, you know, around 80 percent of people are saying they're satisfied with their work and they like being here. So that's a pretty good, pretty good um bar for me as the commissioner to say, are my people doing okay? Can we do better? Absolutely. Can we fill vacancies faster? Absolutely. Um, Are we dealing with the same challenges that every agency is dealing with hiring freezes, OTPS freezes? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're trying to be innovative. The last thing is, you know, we have to spend smartly and wisely. And that means I believe strongly in good governance. And that means being brave enough to ask the question, is what you're doing today relevant? Is it effective? Is it what's needed today if it was something built in years past? And do you have the bravery to say, well, maybe we should stop doing that and redirect those resources to something that's more priority? Mm -hmm. That's a very hard thing to do in city government, in any institution, frankly, public or private. And But it has to be done. We have to run a smarter 
better local government that can make choices that are relevant to the problems that we face today. And sometimes that isn't just asking for more money. Sometimes that's looking within about what we can solve for ourselves. Mm -hmm. All right, we could keep talking a lot about a lot about those management challenges and opportunities, but let yeah. let's get into um, the main reason that we're talking here today, which which was this recent announcement and this recent advisory that you put out as the New York City Health Commissioner related to the dangers of social media. You've called uh, this its own public health crisis. Uh, that there's uh, the social media platforms are serving digital toxins to the public. Um, say a little bit about what this is that you've put out and what it isn't. Um, mm -hmm. I know you've said that this advisory is sort of part of the formal launch of a playbook and there's more to come and we could talk about that in a minute. But when you put out this advisory, and I talked a little bit about this in the introduction, but when you put this out, what is it and what is it not? First, it's a call to action and, a, and a raising the alarm. A lot of the commissioner's advisories we put out as a tool are there to raise awareness and raise alarm when something's concerning enough to me and the health department that New Yorkers need to pay attention. Um, and, and I know that there's been a lot of attention on this issue sort of nationally, but what we're saying is that this is a clear and present danger to New Yorkers grounded in New York data. You know, in 2021, we did a survey that showed 40% of teenagers were so sad or so hopeless that they stopped doing their usual activities. Teen suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts, have increased by 34% since 2012. Um, and when you look at why that might have happened, why that might have happened, um, you start to see the advent of smartphones and social media on those smartphones as paramount. And that's what the emerging research continues to say. The more time spent on these platforms and by extension on mobile devices holding these platforms, the worse mental health is for people, young people at critical stages of brain development, right? The ages between eight and 14 are critical for social development, emotional development, relationship development, identity formation. So one of the things that the advisory does, in addition to raising it broadly as a public health concern, is make a very specific recommendation to parents and caregivers and adults to delay initiation of social media till at least age 14 and then reassess the data and reassess your child to see if they're socially and emotionally uh, capable of handling uh, use of social media platforms. And that's, that's the best approximation of what it means for a New York city young person to be transitioning, transitioning into high school, transitioning into more independence where we know that being in contact is important. We want to make sure we're not talking about the devices we're not talking about smartphones themselves. We're talking about the platforms on those smartphones, the social media platforms. So we understand that parents, I'm a parent of three. I have a 10-year-old who now walks home from school on her own sometimes. I want to be connected to her and make sure she's safe. That's just the expectation of modern parenting. But I don't want her to have a smartphone with social media apps on it. And she can, she can manage that until age 14 at least. That's a very clear piece of guidance. Number two is tech-free times. We want parents, school givers, any adults in and around the lives of kids, spending time with kids to create dedicated times every single day where there are no devices. There's no opportunity to get on social media. There's no, op and there is opportunity to reconnect human to human. You know, 
um, and to do what is, is native to us as creatures, as biological creatures, which is to be in, be in close proximity to one another and, and read body language and feel the pheromones and understand social without the, the media. <laughs> What's the, that? The social without the media, the social without the media. Yeah. yeah. The, yeah. the, the third thing is resources. The advisory points, parents and caregivers and young people to existing resources and talks about other resources that are um, underway. Most importantly is our New York City digital citizenship curriculum, which is in our public schools, which we've developed with um, the Department of Education and and groups like Common Sense Media. We are going to work, and I'm talking actively with the chancellor about really upping our game and disseminating that and making sure that every stakeholder in the school community is using that, as well as there's in resources within that curriculum for young people themselves mm. to actually start to take power, take some of the power back. I know that one of the things I have felt as a parent is powerless and really disempowered to fight back against this. Mm. You know, it's the old knife to a gunfight kind of um, adage. I really want to over the next weeks and months, empower people to feel like you have something to say and you have something you can do, even if these companies are not well-regulated currently. Are you talking with the chancellor about um, cell phone regulations, bans, uh, systems to remove cell phones from students during the school day? Look, I mean, I think that's really in his purview, but certainly that's been tried, right? It's been tried at New York City Public Schools, the dis- I think it was reversed yep. under Mayor de Blasio. I know there are real challenges around implementation. I know there are challenges around parent feedback. So we he is best to get all that stakeholder data and try to figure out what works best. But we currently have schools in New York City that are banning devices. Sure. And in study after study from outside of New York, we know that schools that ban, uh, that prohibit devices have better outcomes, learning outcomes, um, and mental health and well-being outcomes mm-hmm. for their young people. So um, that should point you in the direction of where, from a health perspective, I'd love to be. But I know that the reality of our most complex school system is yeah. it can can offer challenges. It is fascinating, though, to just think about where we are now in 2024 compared to back in 2014 when Mayor de Blasio came in and, and the circumstances were just so very different about... Um, young people and use of cell phones and social media and and even what we know now, certainly, I mean, that's a decade already, but um, it does speak to the question of what we know and don't know. And I, I know that part of what you, uh, you know, sort of reiterated in this advisory is that there are things we sort of know about the dangers and threats. And then there's also, there there's more data that we need, of course, on something that is still a, a somewhat new trend uh, in terms of youth and social media platforms uh, and and all that comes with those, including some of the algorithms that are you know being discussed as potentially to be regulated at the state and federal levels. Um, but from what you've seen and what you've identified, what are the most dangerous pieces of this puzzle? What are the things that you're most concerned about if um, if if you're trying to empower parents and caregivers, let's say, that are the most important things to sort of be aware of or to limit? Is it time on platforms and devices or is it certain content? Um, you know, what are the pieces that are most uh, troublesome and problematic here? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, first of all, time is important. 
regardless of the platform, the more time you spend on social media, the worse it is for your mental health. Like we know that time mental health relationship. We don't know it precisely and to the minute or the hour, but we know broadly that people who spent more time uh, have worse mental health outcomes. So that's, that's, that relationship is pretty clear. Um, we know that um, video and uh, phot photographic content media um, performs differently on the brain than text content, right? Is more addictive. Um, we know that the type of video, the short clips, the TikTokification of, of uh, social media has been extremely addictive. And of course, that's all backed up by boosted algorithms. Mm -hmm. So not only boosted algorithms, but things like autoplay, where there's an automatic video. You have no choice. It just, mm -hmm. you have to actually opt out of that, right? You have no choice but to see more and more and more and more of the same content. Um, the other piece is content regulation content warnings, but also content bans. Um, you know, I was watching the hearings today and, and the Senate hearings for just a bit. And, you know, it, it was pretty troubling to see the the very low barrier content labeling that that some of the platforms have tried. And and it still says proceed anyway. Right. You know, I think that that's fairly naive in terms of what that we just need to decide what content is really unsafe. I'd rather err, given how vulnerable our young people are, I'd rather err on the side of a little bit of more content, content restriction for certain age groups than this free-for-all that we're currently in. Um, and then, of course, you know, I think it's, it's, the type of, uh, it's the type of media itself. You know, is it, um, is it a podcast like this that gets that gets um, clipped and then posted, or is it, and where we can see the zoom boxes, or is it that kind of rapid fire video, you know, strobing and other effects that have become so commonplace on media. So those are just amongst yeah. the things that from a content perspective, I think parents should, and caregivers and, and adults and young people themselves should really watch out for. I think for young people, particularly my message to young people is first of all, you're not alone. Second of all, anything that makes you feel worse about yourself, like anything that you're looking at online where you kind of say to yourself, man, I don't feel so good or that makes me feel bad, stay away from that stuff, right? Whether it's body image content or bullying and violence or hate speech um, or subway surfing, as the mayor has highlighted, just stay away from that stuff if you can. I know it's hard. This is highly addictive stuff, but but I think we need to... Part of the curriculum, the digital citizenship curriculum, is trying to train our brains to kind of ask the right questions when we're engaged in these um, platforms. You know, uh, last thing is, it, it's been really interesting. I've done a little natural experiment in my own life. I don't know if you recall when I started, um, I was getting protesters coming to my home basically every multiple times a week. And the way that they found out where I lived was they doxed me online and on Instagram. And as a result of that, I, I just stopped using Instagram. I haven't used Instagram in since June of 2022. Mm -hmm. And I have noticed a massive difference in my time spent on my phone, time spent on device overall. Obviously I have to be on my devices for work, but, um, and my well-being. 
because I don't go down those rabbit holes for hours and hours that I used to do scrolling. So I'm as human as anyone else. And, and imagine now I'm a, an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old. Right. I mean, you're getting into some tricky territory, right? You you were treated badly, which you shouldn't have been. This was, I believe, from people who were against COVID vaccine. And multiple things. I mean, mandates. Biden, there was, it was a witch's yeah. brew of... of a, <laughs> so you were treated badly, and that led you to give something up that overall you feel like is better for you, but was still something that I would guess you were able to sort of put some limits on uh, already. And now you've sort of given it up and any of the positive uh, benefits of, you know, being sort of connected, sharing about your life on Instagram that you want, I don't know, friends and family to see or whatever it might be. Um, I don't know that, you know, that's a tricky one. I mean, that's the type of thing where you think about youth and actually what I was going to ask you next, which was about, you know, the sort of bullying aspects of this, which is a lot of that can happen, as you well know, without the social platforms, right? In group texts, it happens a lot in other, you know, formats. Um, again, a lot of that enabled by phones and smartphones, but and accelerated by platforms, uh, social platforms. Um, but there is this, you know, sort of tricky undercurrent of, young people who might want to have some access to these things or be able to communicate with friends and family by phone don't want to be bullied. Um, but if they're getting bullied, is the answer for them to have to sort of give up uh, those connections or the, you know those potential positives? You get into some tricky sort of territory about what behavior is being rewarded and not, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you there's a number of rich things in what you asked, but I think the top line is that in, in a currently totally unregulated environment, yes, it does require, I think, giving something up to keep oneself safe or keep their young person safe. I want to live in a world where we can engage in social media in safer, healthier ways, where we know there are limitations, where we're not going to be exposed to toxic content, where we're not going to be exposed to opportunities to bully where there's enough. I mean, these are the most sophisticated engineers on the world. The idea that they can't build a device or a tool within these platforms to identify potential bullying, to identify, um, you know, hate speech, to identify violent or sexual content. That's naive, right? So they can do it, but they need to be regulated to do it. And so we're big supporters of things like the Kids Online Safety Act which is in the Senate, has a couple of co-sponsors. I think Senator Blumenthal is one of them in Connecticut, but doesn't have a House sponsor yet. Mm. And we would love to see that passed in this Congress because, and based on what I saw in the Senate testimony today, there's pretty broad bipartisan support for this, right? And polling supports like that it. too, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 60 to 70% of Americans want some controls on this stuff. So I I think that there's an opportunity here, but yeah, in the in the current environment, the Wild West, as I call it, there mm -hmm. there you have to end up making those tough choices. It's part of why we also don't say get rid of social media, right? Mm -hmm. We're gonna you're probably gonna post this on multiple For platforms, sure. right? I, I, the irony is not lost on me, right? But first, you're an adult. Your brain is developed, or mo I assume mostly developed, and mine too. Mostly. Still working on it, yeah. Although I might be regressing some days. Um, you know, it's 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 about that vulnerable brain, the vulnerable time, and it's about protecting young people. We, we were very specific that social. This is not about all social media is bad. 
not certainly about devices themselves being bad. It's really about this unfettered, unregulated access to social media that we currently have. Um, two, two questions coming out of that. First, um, you mentioned being supportive of this federal legislation, the Kids Online Safety Act, that was the main subject or, or key piece of the subject of this hearing in Washington, D.C., the Senate hearing today. Any other uh, just quickly pieces of, of legislation at the state or federal level that is part of sort of this developing agenda or that you'd like to see passed? I know that Governor Hochul, Attorney General James, and and some key state legislature, legislators have introduced a couple of bills at the state level um, that would sort of put some restrictions on the algorithms and the sort of ways that uh, feeds are regulated on the social yeah. platforms and also protect some of the data collection from youth mm-hmm. on the platforms. Um, is the city, are you and the city behind those couple of bills at the state level? Yeah, I mean, I think notionally, yes. I, I wouldn't speak on behalf of the, the official position of uh, mm-hmm. City Hall, but but um, yes, I think things like that, where we're addressing pieces of this around boosted algorithms, around um, self-control of feeds, around data sharing, um, we're definitely supportive of this. But why we are really focusing our efforts on COSA is because, especially with FCC rules, FTC rules, very hard for states and localities to do this on our own, right? You saw Wyoming banned TikTok and other states are trying. It's it's very tough, right? You know, these are not confined technologies, right? They are they don't they're borderless, which is why we need a platform, a floor from the federal government to start to bring some order to this chaos. But I'm really supportive of any attempt to try to do that, but ultimately it's going to take federal legislation to create the standards we need. Same that we did with seatbelts, same that we did with with so many other things. The difference, you know, we were able to lead, we call social media digital toxin, but it's not something that we can simply control in our local environment like tobacco smoke. You know, we were out in front on tobacco regulation here in New York City. Um, we're out in front and calling this out, but we need some support from the federal government. In, in that vein, you, you spoke about you've spoken multiple times about this uh, advisory being sort of the one of the first pieces of a public health playbook that you're going to put into effect. Can you just broadly sort of say a little bit about what those the other sort of plays in that playbook are? And is there is there anything that you sort of would say this is analogous to? Because there's obviously all sorts of as you've referenced all sorts of other toxins that we've tried to regulate, like cigarette smoke. Um, water pollution and even, you know, air diseases. Um, is there anything analogous here or a combination of things that are analogous to the steps that you're hoping to take? And given that there is a lot that relies on federal and perhaps state regulation, what are the things that the city can control here? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it shares some features of, of multiple different exposures. Um, you know, it it certainly has the we certainly have the link with health outcomes. So tracking those health outcomes, better research and tracking those health outcomes, disaggregating data and really getting to some of those questions you asked. Is it the dose? Is it the type of content? Which platforms are worse than others? Uh, which age groups are more vulnerable? Is it age group or is it a particular type of kid with particular vulnerabilities and risks that are more at risk than others? Some of those seem like common sense questions. We want to back it up with data. And so we're out there in the field right now collecting data on these some of these questions uh, because we want New York City data too, right? 
we've always led. Part of what made our work on tobacco so strong is that we were able to establish harm to New Yorkers, not just global harms and national harms, but we established harm to New Yorkers through our data. And that's, um, you know, I always say to the team, data is our superpower here at the health department because everything we do is driven by the data we collect. So that's one, data and research. Two is education and harm reduction. Again, this is not about taking things away or snatching phones out of people's hands or or banning uh, devices or, or platforms. But this is about what do you need to do to empower yourself to ask the same, the right questions to reshape your relationship? Number one, that's whether you're a young person or an adult. Um, number two is where can you get in conversation with others? Because one of the things that I know as a parent is there's a lot of shame associated with this, especially if you're one of those parents out there. And believe me, if you're a parent of a kid under 14 who's using a device today, you're not alone and don't feel shame. There are people who can, we can support you. You know, there are forum of parent groups and other support structures, but the city's putting out, you know, conversation guides, curriculum, resources for parents to have those conversations. People don't know where to start, um, but they certainly also don't know where to gather and um, where they can find mutual support. So there is kind of a, uh, a collective nature to that. So that's education and, and harm reduction is another pillar. Um, certainly policy and regulation, you know, there isn't, we, we would never take anything off the table, but as I said, tough to make local policy that can um, control a borderless uh, exposure like this, mm-hmm. different to something like the Smoke-Free Air Act that was able to actually regulate indoor air quality right? And take away tobacco smoke. And then lastly, of course, we're, you know, like any sound uh, locality in the country, we're, we're looking deeply at what's going on in terms of legal strategies. Um, you saw 33 attorneys general have filed suit um, against the, some of the key companies. There's a massive uh, federal case, uh, a multi-district litigation um, in the Northern District of California uh, with um, a bunch of school systems and local jur- jurisdictions um, participating in that, you know, we're watching that really carefully in terms of our approach as well. So there's more to come in this space, but um, that's kind of the public health playbook. Part of what, um, why affirmative litigation is really interesting and an important tool is because one, it spurs action, right? It usually comes with conditionality. And it can also come with damages, right? When we sued, New York City sued the tobacco companies, we got damages, right? And we were able to reinvest those damages into public health programs and to tobacco control efforts. And so so that's the kind of thing that we're watching very carefully. And we're not alone. We're just, there's a chorus of places around this country that are, that are demanding change. And today's hearing was just another, I mean, you had some strange bedfellows getting up there and talking very powerfully about the ills of social media. Folks who have a strange relationship with the facts on other issues, they seem to be right on on this issue. Um, Rare sources of bipartisanship these days. Yes, very notable. Uh, I only have you for a few more minutes here, so let me try to hit a couple other things. Um, You're listening to Dr. Ashwin Vasan, the New York City Health Commissioner, and appreciate the time, Dr. Vasan. So sounds like a big sort of 
we'll see what happens on numerous pieces of this playbook, but especially on the on the litigation front. And obviously, uh, Attorney General James at the state level has been uh, involved with some of these efforts. And we'll see see what you all at the city uh, decide to do. Um, just to touch on a couple of things briefly, you announced a study uh, of long COVID, uh, many people with suffering from these effects of COVID infections that are really lingering some in, you know, sort of what we might call more benign ways, but still lingering and, and in all the way to much more severe ways. You're going to study two, two parts of this question. One, are there resources for those individuals now other than participating in this study? Are, are you know, I think a lot of people suffering from long COVID feel very alone yeah. I'm wondering what resources the city has for them now. And then two, what do you hope will come from this study? Yeah. Um, so on the first question, yes, there are definitely resources now, both through the health department and H&H. We have long COVID centers of excellence, several of them around the city. Um, you can go to uh, NYC Health and Hospitals COVID Center of Excellence and uh, find a location near you. And and these are clinicians that are looking at these symptoms all day, right? Really talking to people about what they're dealing with um, and and how to support people both medically, but also socially and, and psychologically through the through the after effects of of uh, for some people that has been a long term lingering uh, condition. Um, you know, the best analogy to this cohort study is the World Trade Center registry and registries like it. We didn't know a lot at the time of 9-11 about what the long-term impacts on health would be on first responders, on family members, on people exposed in lower Manhattan. But because we created a registry and followed people over time, not only did we learn a ton about um, the toxic exposure and environmental health concerns uh, when the when the Tin Towers collapsed, but on the basis of that, we've been able to work with legislators and others to to get disability legislation passed, to get reparations and payments passed to families and first responders, um, and to really unlock what are the long-term health impacts of these exposures. So this is a tried and true methodology. And so we're going to follow 10,000 people over several years um, and really find out a couple of things. One, what is the constellation of symptoms that really defines what long COVID is? How long is long? What are the symptoms? What can we really attribute to the COVID infection that you had at one point and what might be something else? And we will only really know that over time. You know, anything that lingers beyond four weeks post-infection could potentially fall into the category of long COVID, but it's still a shifting definition. Number two is once we know that, and if there truly are a group of people that develop long-term symptoms, maybe even disabilities from that, then we can galvanize a similar conversation with legislators and otherwise to say, well, maybe we need to support people long-term. Maybe we need to think of this, at least in this subset of folks, as a disabling condition and all the rights and responsibilities that come with it. But right now we're kind of grasping a little bit in the dark. Make no mistake, Post-viral, long-term post-viral symptoms are not altogether uncommon. You can even see uh, oral histories and written reports of long-term symptoms from the 1918-19 flu pandemic. Um, so it's not altogether uncommon that you get a brand new virus and you end up with long-term symptoms because it attacks, and particularly COVID, attacks every system in your body, just about. Um, 
but that doesn't mean all of it is a result of COVID. And so that really unpacking that is going to be a major focus of this study. And we're lucky to have um, some federal grants to do so. Last two quick ones, uh, just jumping around a little bit to, to see about a couple of, you know, sort of pressing things. One is, um, is the city looking to expand the number of overdose prevention centers from the current two that have been in place a while now? The city has mostly um, sort of said that these have been successful as places for people to safely use drugs, but also try to connect with services um, is this something that in 2024, the city is going to expand to other locations? Well, you know, I think we're looking for opportunities to do so. We are in a very unfavorable legal and frankly, political leadership environment um, to do so safely without threatening other other forms of, of oversight and accountability from the state or federal government. So we're looking for that leadership. We can't do it alone, um, but we are committed. We've set aside money within our opioid settlement dollars. I've been extremely vocal in committing ourselves to this model as part of a multi-pronged strategy, right? I think the focus gets placed on this model as somehow singularly effective. It's a part of a bigger strategy that includes treatment and naloxone and post-overdose non-fatal overdose support and a whole range of supports, mental health supports um, and housing that um, we need to be uh, thinking of much more comprehensively, but we need political leadership from the state and from um, other, from the federal government on this issue to solve a a worsening public health crisis. We hit our record high in overdoses in 2022 it's likely to outpace that in 2023. A New Yorker is dying every three hours or less from a fatal overdose. So we have, a, and fentanyl is scrambling all of our efforts, 80% of the, or more now, 80, more than 80% of our fatal overdoses involve fentanyl in some way. And so we have a mass that we're behind the eight ball and we need to scale up. It's a, I like to say it's a sort of all hands on deck thing, but I would hate to close the door on a life-saving strategy. And that seems to be what folks are, are the, re- the rhetoric coming out of other parts of the state and the, and the federal government is that we're not ready for this door to open. We're encouraged by places like Rhode Island that have passed model legislation to pilot these sites, but they don't even have one open yet. So we've got two that are active. They're saving lives today. We need many more. You know, we committed to five more in our mental health plan, but that assumed a more favorable legal and, and political environment. And we need that to happen. And, and, and I'm hopeful. Meanwhile, what we're working on is supporting the sites that want to open with everything we can to get them ready. And we published guidance. We published standard operating procedures to show and have baked that into things like contracts and otherwise to ensure that people know that this is regulated. This is over, we have oversight, we have regulation, we're paying attention, we're collecting data, we're doing this safely. This isn't just a, um, you know, an unsupervised, unregulated model. So we're so much more to on point and our partners. So much more to discuss there, which we'll do another time. Just as I let you go, I also wanted to touch on, speaking of models that you support, um, the, the clubhouse model where you, you were working very closely uh, at Fountain House on this, 
the, the city is looking to expand this model for resources and sort of, uh, you know, places for people with, living with serious mental illness to come and have, you know, sort of uh, ability to make social connections, uh, connect to opportunities, but also have it happen in a less rigid environment. Uh, that's the whole idea here behind the, the clubhouse model, if I'm capturing it correctly. The city's looking to expand it, but also by some of the ways you put out the request for proposals on it, you've got some providers concerned that they will be locked out of the next sort of round of city funding on this. I, I know this is a much larger conversation, but I wanted to ask you about it because there have been those concerns expressed. What can you sort of say about where the city approach to this model and the funding for it is headed? in our last minute here. Yeah, well, I'm a little limited in what I can say specifically because it's still an open RFP. Well, the RFP is closed, but the review process is underway. Um, so I won't comment on the specifics. What I will say, and I continue to say, and frankly, even the critics are saying is like, we support expansion of clubhouses and we support uh, the, the administration's agenda to make sure that more people have access to clubhouses. Only about 5,000 people attend clubhouses in New York City, in a city with 240,000 people with serious mental illness. It's been, it's it, and it's always been a little irony of mine uh, as head of Fountain House and even here, that a model that is centered on breaking social isolation is so isolated from the rest of our systems, our housing systems, our clinical systems, our other, other supports. And so, uh, our intention is to expand access to this model, but also bring it into view. The, the model will only survive if it forms partnerships, referral bases, partnerships with housing, partnerships with clinical care. It has to break its own isolation. And, and part of that means figuring out new ways to support people. The last thing is the offerings, you know. Um, whether you're small or large, the quality of rehabilitation for someone living with serious mental illness is also a function sometimes of the offerings you have, right? If you have a kitchen and a, and a waiting room, it's not the same as if you have three, five, 10 different units that you can offer people a range of services and a range of providers. And sometimes there's a trade-off between size and, and offerings. And so we just need to have that conversation at the appropriate time, happy to have it with anyone, um, I'm mindful of the concerns, very respectful of the concerns, but ultimately we want to protect everyone's community and we want to make sure this model expands and becomes foundational to our community mental health system. Thank you. I appreciate that that answer. And there's obviously, again, more to talk about there. I wanted to try to sneak in a couple of things, but sure. uh, I know I know it's hard on all these things to just answer one piece of, of the puzzle. But thanks for the extended conversation here, especially about the social media efforts. Uh, Dr. Ashwin Vasan, uh, thank you for the time. Uh, good luck. Be well. And uh, we'll catch up down the road. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate your time. 